welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and joining me as ever, I'm delighted to say, is Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Hey, Neil. You're looking well there, um, ensconced in your new house, like in the pictures in the in the background there. It's uh, nice to see the new environment up and running. Thank you, thank you. Yes, it's taking shape, and yeah, the um, the lobby cards behind me. One is an ever present, the my number one film on my sight and sound poll. See if anyone remembers what that is. And the other one is <laughs> in honour of today's episode. So. Can you see what that is? Can you make it out? Fantastic. I can't. I can't quite make it out because there's a little bit of pixelated there. So you'll have to. You might have to describe it because this is you know podcast gold it's, and all that. Indeed, I'm trying to get the audience to use their cinematic imaginary, but uh, I'll just tell everyone that it's uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest lobby card. So ah, fantastic. Yes. So yeah, feeling nicely settled uh, in the chaos, uh, enjoying the space and enjoying the sun, which has been a nice, uh, nice change in Falmouth in the last few days. So what about you? Yeah, yeah. Same, same thing. Had a nice uh, long weekend, had a drive out into the, the country. What else has happened? Not an awful lot. I've just been, I gave myself, you know, absolute permission, kind of forced myself not to do anything at all. So I did a lot of reading. I f- finished off a couple of, uh, there was one book I, I was nearly finished, which I finished, and then another one I was continuing to read. But it was nice to not have that sort of sense of, oh, I've got a half an hour, so I'll cram in a bit of reading. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, I can sit there and literally not think about what's coming next. So uh, that was quite nice because I, f- I finished off the the editing, or the draft editing for this episode on the on the Friday. So it was just sort of nice to go, oh, that's that, that's done. Yeah, and I think people will hear from the episode that it's uh, not your regular podcast edit. You know, it's a lot more. There's a lot more to it than than than, than normal. So a well earned a well earned weekend off, I think, uh, when when people hear it. So so let's yeah let's talk about what the what the episode is all about. This is one that has been long in the making. We were approached as as a podcast, which was very nice. And yeah, you took on the huge responsibility, really, of of putting together this 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 episode. So do you want to do you want to tell our listeners what uh, what they're in for? Yeah, I mean, it's always interesting when we get calls to collaborate in various kinds of ways, and um, we've done a couple of episodes like this. Um, before, which is a specific collaboration with a, a research project. But interestingly, this was the first time we'd been asked to collaborate on something where there was a potential of some kind of uh, funding crossover. So it was a funded research project, and we were going to have a consultancy um, to produce one of the outputs and create a kind of audio documentary around the project. So we were contacted by Dr. Tim Snelson of the University of East Anglia, who's an associate professor in cinema and media history, and Dr. Ray McCauley of the University of Manchester, who's a research fellow in uh, psychology and history of science, technology and medicine. And they are part of an AHRC British Science Museum project entitled Demons of the Mind. And this focuses on a period of collaboration between the late 1950s and the early 1970s between what they term the sci-sciences or the psychological field, the disciplines, and the film industry um, or various films and various studios um, in Britain and the United States during during that period. That collaboration, as you'll hear on, on the show, really coincides with a transition in in the field of psychoanalysis, indeed a, a, a transition which probably aligns with the change from psychoanalysis to psychology in terms of the terminology, but a kind of move away from 
a certain ideology and way of thinking around what mental health is to what what would be the antecedents of what we look at in a more modern terms as mental health. So it's a self-contained edit. I'm going to let it speak for itself. Yeah, and Neil and I will do our regular chat and debrief afterwards. I'm looking forward to to hearing his his points. But yeah, it's uh, it took quite a bit of doing because it is one of these shows where there's a lot of kind of interplay between the conversations and the interview. The interview that I did with the guys kind of was kept in its original form, but I wrote a narration and then edited it with the, the clips that you'll hear to create a kind of overall through line argument and 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 what have you so uh yeah um a lot of work on this one um but i hope you enjoy it yeah a lot of really fascinating uh work so i'm, I'm really excited to talk about it afterwards so this is dario's demons of the mind documentary i think i'd better tell you as well as i can just what the situation is have you ever heard of multiple personality? In this particular case, there doesn't seem to be much room for doubt about one thing. What? One of our young ladies is insane. I never want you to forget this ward. We call it the regressed ward. Their illnesses were discovered too late because there was no one to help them while there was still time for them to be helped. No one cared enough. We care, all of us. We wouldn't be here. You could have a wonderful life. But this is death, don't you see? Nothing but death. Is that what you love? fact you may be having spells of amnesia doesn't mean that you're what you call losing your mind doesn't mean that at all no use because i am you don't want to tell me but i know it now how do you know mrs white because now i'm hearing voices too the three faces of eve directed by nonali johnson was released in 1957 starring Joanne Woodward as the seemingly timid housewife Eve White, who suffers from headaches and blackouts. The film sinks the conventions of melodrama and noir, but it's the focus on the psychological experience and the detailed depiction of treatment that mark the film out as seminal. During one of Eve's blackouts, we see her engage in out-of-character behavior, like buying expensive clothes. Nothing particularly seditious there, perhaps, beyond riling up her controlling husband. However, we witness her aggressively trying to silence her young daughter Bonnie by pushing her onto the sofa and covering her mouth. Upon witnessing this, her husband takes her to psychiatrist Dr. Curtis Luther, played by Lee J. Cobb, who talks to Eve about her memories and experiences of childhood. Eventually, the therapy brings to the surface the wild, fun-loving Eve Black, who demonstrates almost diametrically opposing character and personality traits. What kind of voices? Just one voice. But that's what that means, doesn't it? How long has this been going on? 
for months. Why didn't you tell me this before? What does this voice say to you? She tells me to do things. A woman's voice. After multiple conversations with Eve, Dr. Luther leans towards a new kind of diagnosis, what is now called dissociative identity disorder, but back then was known as multiple personality disorder. Woodward's convincing portrayal of the switch between personalities is what gives the film its emotional power, earning her an Academy Award. This is why. What was it, a headache? No, I didn't have no headache. She had one, but I didn't. She? Yet considerable time is spent on the process of psychotherapy, with discussions between doctors regarding diagnosis and treatment. The film was based on a book written by two psychiatrists, Corbett Thinkpen and Hervey Cleckley. It documented the real-life case history of multiple personality sufferer Christine Costner Sizemore, known as Chris. The two doctors acted as consultants on the screenplay, which reflected an interrelationship between the process of filmmaking and the psychiatric profession that marked something of a turning point in film history. In the post-war era, emerging in parallel with the Freudian concept of psychoanalysis, a host of films were made that reflected a popular interest, not only in psychological narratives, but also in authentic cases depicting the relationship between sci-science professionals, i.e. those working in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, and their patients. Furthermore, the period also saw a series of actual collaborations between filmmakers, film studios, writers, working psychiatrists and psychologists, and even film censors. The context and outcomes of this period of direct crossover between the sci-sciences and the film industry is the subject of a research project funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council entitled Demons of the Mind. Here's principal investigator Tim Snelson outlining the aims and scope of the project. But we were looking at something much more material and concrete, which is partly why we wanted to bring in these different disciplines together and different historical focuses to think about some of the very conscious and material decisions and interactions particularly that were happening to produce these films. And I started to look at the 1960s as a period of escalated interest in psychiatric ideas and themes and issues. So I was starting to sort of contemplate some of those ideas, particularly at that point looking at some true crime uh, cycles of production in the, in the 60s. But what we were interested in is thinking about this period in terms of as a period that simultaneously there was this very heavy investment, but also quite a sort of complex interest in different forms of psychiatric ideas and expertise. Here's the project's co-investigator, Ray McCauley, on the focus of interest when it comes to these collaborations. Yeah, I think one of the things that informed our approach was the role of um, advisors, of science advisors, of clinicians and those in the sci-sciences, psychologists, psychiatrists and psychoanalysts, of how they 
shaped the way in which they were portrayed and the way that the patients and the way that the conditions were encapsulated and envisaged on screen. We had previously uh, looked at how science advisors in different capacities um, engage with filmmakers, with professional filmmakers, and the objectives of the different stakeholders are sometimes in harmony with one another, but they can sometimes be conflicting. And what we were interested in was things like knowledge production and the ways in which conditions and experiences are defined by two sets of professions, as it were, or often multiple sets of professions who have a notion of how best to convey that through the medium of film. In this special episode of the Cinematologist podcast, we draw upon the fascinating work in the Demons of the Mind project, exploring the complex interrelations between cinema and the sci sciences in the mid-20th century. We explore the dimensions of mutual influence, the resultant outcomes in terms of the depiction of psychological themes, the relationship between doctors and patients, changing ideas around causes and treatments of certain conditions, and the very social perception of mental illness. And we will look at the rationale for these collaborations, their ideological and moral parameters. But first, we set out the broad context of affinity between two quintessentially modern ideas, cinema and psychoanalysis. Thinking through the affinity between cinema and the broad concept of human psychology, one soon realizes how wide-ranging, complex, and woven through the history of film they are. The structure of narrative storytelling, combined with the mechanics of audiovisual language, is often explicitly deployed to articulate the state of mind of characters. Psychological realism, that characters we watch on screen affect recognizable behaviors, is arguably the bedrock of cinematic storytelling. But further than that, films have always based narratives around problematic character psychology, emotional expressions and allusions to trauma, which define character actions within the structure of the narrative. Such an approach, of course, defines the work of many of the great auteurs of cinema, such as Alfred Hitchcock. Wouldn't it be better if you put her someplace You mean an institution? A madhouse? People always call a madhouse someplace, don't they? There are many examples of films that are set in the milieu of the sci sciences, with doctors and patients as central characters, along with problematically concerned parents eager to find out what's wrong with their children. So what is this borderline business you mentioned on the phone? Oh, look, um... I don't think that's useful to Susanna. I mean, not... Uh, what borderline business? You see, the, the mind... Borderline what? Is the Borderline between what and what? Melvin. It's a condition, Susanna. And it's called borderline personality disorder. Oh, God. The preponderance of such films has arguably manifested a recognisable genre. Here, in Girl Interrupted, we see a familiar scene of a character who demonstrates supposedly pathological traits culminating in a suicide attempt. Subsequently, the family of Susanna Kaysen, played by Winona Ryder, seek to commit her to an institution against her will. 
The mental institution itself is a familiar site for stories that deal with an array of mental conditions. But it also serves as a microcosm for wider social critique. Now look, I'm, I'm voluntary here, see, I'm not committed. I don't have to stay here, I mean, I can go home anytime I want. You can go home anytime you want. That's it. You're bullshitting me. No. He's bullshitting me, right? No, Randall. He's telling you the truth. As, as well as creating a certain kind of aesthetic and spatial aura, the mental institution serves to frame the symbolic power relations at play in medical discourse. Billy, for Christ's sakes, you must be committed, right? In one of the most famous institutional films, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, questions of what constitutes mental pathology and how society should deal with such sufferers is tied to the social role of the institution and plays out within the specific power dynamic between Randall McMurphy and Nurse Ratchet. Jesus, I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here, and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out? I mean, what do you think you are, for Christ's sake, crazy or something? Mm-hmm. Well, you're not. <laughs> you're not. There are also many films in which the key theme is the impact of psychologists or psychoanalysts. Look at me, son. It's not your fault. I know. It's not your fault. I know. No, no, you don't. It's not your fault. Sometimes they can be savior figures, like Sean McGuire, played by Robin Williams in Goodwill Hunting. It's not your fault. Don't fuck with me, all right? Don't fuck with me, Sean. Not you. It's not your fault. There is also an impressive lineage of characters who embody the stereotype of the mad scientist, the monstrous manipulator, or the psychologist who is actually themselves psychotic. His real name is Benjamin Raspell, a former patient of mine whose romantic attachments ran to, shall we say, the exotic. I did not kill him, I assure you, merely tucked him away very much as I found him after he'd missed three appointments. If you didn't kill him, then who did, sir? Who can say? Best thing for him, really. His therapy was going nowhere. And often, in big-budget franchise movies, such as Joker, it's used as the underpinning to complex criminal psychopathy. You don't listen, do you? I don't think you ever really hear me. You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. Beyond the representations of psychological themes and experiences in film, there is the very concept of the cinematic apparatus, the unique auditorium configuration of spectator, space and screen, a machine which, once entered, manifests a unique psychological experience. Film theorist Jean-Louis Baudry draws on the spectator identification theory of Lacan to correlate this unique experience of film viewing and the mirror phase of a child's development. He likens entering the darkened auditorium of the cinema with being submerged into the dream state. The machine thus facilitates a fantasy of regression into an infantilized state. We are then allowed a unique kind of psychological access where we project onto characters our unconscious desires and traumas. 
Interestingly, as the technique of psychoanalysis fell somewhat out of fashion, overtaken by other forms of psychology, it has been adopted as a core method of critique by literary and cultural theorists and by feminists and film studies scholars. In the 1970s, the phenomenological turn amalgamated with a more expressional, ideological form of psychoanalytic film theory. This was developed in the work of Christian Metz and then Laura Mulvey. Mulvey producing, of course, one of the most ubiquitously cited concepts in all of film studies, the male gaze. From the very beginning of cinema, it seems as though filmmakers were interested in this new field of inner discovery, even looking to collaborate directly with the father of psychoanalysis himself, Sigmund Freud. From the silent period, filmmakers are looking to, well, explicitly looking to Freud initially as to ask him to be a collaborator and to, you know, to bring his expertise together with theirs to create something. He's famously was a big cynic of cinema as being a place where Freudian ideas could work. I know that there was a, there was filmmakers who approached him. So Sam Goldwyn, isn't it, from um, who who went to see him in Vienna. Uh, he was making, I think he was making an ep film about uh, the history of like great love stories or something. He wanted Freud to collaborate on that. He rocked up at Vienna and Freud said, refused to see him and said, send him home. <laughs> And I think particularly he was cynical about Hollywood cinema and, and, you know, the particular genre formats that might be used to communicate his ideas as being incompatible. But, you know, German cinemas perhaps approached him. It was um, Secrets of the Soul, the film about collaborating on that, which he, he refused. So I think, you know, there are a number of filmmakers who, who, who felt, and, you know, some filmmakers who were, as with something like Secrets of the Soul, who really did see this connection and feel like there was a, a close affinity between these two, you know, modes of address or modes of, of, of under, people understanding themselves. Perhaps Freud was right to be cynical about the representation of what at the time was a radical field of inquiry on the human condition. The depictions of mind specialists, a term used for psychological practitioners up until around the 1940s, were often one-dimensional. Their characterizations generally used to help shape the generic elements of plot, but were very broad in definition. One of the things that I was looking at in wartime cinema was the psychologization of horror. So horror films had to become less gruesome uh, and less traditionally horrific, particularly in order to be able to be played in overseas markets, particularly mm. in Britain where horror was banned. Um, this psychologization of horror did involve then, the, to some extent, a shift away from the, you know, the classic mad scientist narratives towards, in some respects, the idea of like a mad psychiatrist coming in to replace that. But certainly you get this, these depictions across a number of films of malevolent, even, you know, in some cases, murderous psychiatrists in, in these wartime uh, films. So, you know, from things like Cat People and Calling Dr. Death. I've got to find out. Self-hypnosis. Yes, that's the only way. Released in 1943, Calling Dr. Death was directed by Reginald LeBorg and starred the popular horror lead Lon Chaney Jr. as psychiatrist Dr. Steele. Steele himself suffers a bout of long-term amnesia, after which he's told that his wife has been brutally murdered. Learning of her infidelity, he believes that he may be the killer and enlists the aid of a nurse, Stella, to hypnotize him in an attempt to recover 
his lost memories. Relax. And what you get is, particularly as the war comes to an end, you get a backlash against these from both from critics and from the psychiatric profession. So a film, a particular film that I looked at uh, in that period, the film Shock, um, 1945 film with Vincent Price playing a, a murderous psychiatrist who tries to kill the only witness through insulin shock therapy. Well, thou love her, comfort her, honour and keep her in sickness and in health. And forsaking all others, keep only unto her, so long as she both shall live. I will. What's the matter, Richard? You haven't been yourself lately. Something on your mind? Darling, what's happening with us? Richard, I must speak to you. People are talking about you and that nurse, Miss Jordan. This was a film that really triggered a lot of alarm for both critics and psychiatrists at the time and it was a film particularly they were seen as doing a disservice to the psychiatric professions at a time when there was a a need to advocate for them and particularly in terms of the use of methods like insulin shock therapy with uh with with soldiers with veterans who were traumatized from the war the treatment itself consists of a series of shocks brought on by injections of insulin. The dosage and the degree of shock is gradually increased until we've reached what we feel is the limit the patient's system can stand. Well, if you do give Janet this insulin, how, how certain can you be that it'll help her? I'm neither a miracle man nor a prophet, Lieutenant. If medicine were an exact science and not an art, I might be able to tell you. So there was this real sense in which Hollywood was doing this real disservice to not only the profession, but also to the public. And so what you, you got people like some of Freud's contemporaries who were going to these like rundown grindhouse cinemas to see these films and to pass judgment on them in the New York Times and say, you know, like the, talk about the inaccuracies of them and so on and so forth. And within that, then to call for more involvement for one, for Hollywood to be held to account, but also for more involvement of the psychiatric expertise in crafting these films and putting a more uh, sort of quite honest depiction of of psychiatry and its its methods and techniques so then you start to get what i refer to as psychiatric or what were referred to at the time as psychiatric pictures and you know a, a key example of that would be the post-war film say dark mirror from 1946 it did have psychiatric expertise in crafting it but also definitely had rather than the the dark gothic uh mad psychiatrist figure definitely had the more benevolent godlike uh psychiatrist figure and I don't know if you've seen that film, but it's a film that uses this quite innovative split-screen technique to have two Olivia de Havilland's on screen as right. two as good and bad twins. What's this one? Uh, these are pictures of ink blots. Actually, the kind you probably made yourself when you were a child. Just blobs of ink and the paper folded over. What's it for? It's another way of examining personality. Through various uses of different psychiatric techniques or, or psychiatric and psychological techniques like the Rorschach and uh, hypnosis and through other techniques, it's only the psychiatrist who's able to distinguish between these two de Havilland's and to overcome, to claim mastery over this innovative cinematic technique through his expertise and ultimately, obviously, 
marries the good to Haviland and sends the other one off to a psychiatric institution. Mm. This looks like the face of a white lamb with a black nose. It's got a mark on its forehead. It looks like a moth spreading its wings over a butterfly. Beneath its front paws are two men, face down, with their arms outstretched. It all seems symbolic of something. The lamb looks so innocent, but it has two men under its paws. Symbolic of what? You also then start to get the trend of things like um, things like Possessed and The Snake Pit and films like this, which do, which have a start to have a more complex and nuanced depiction of mental institutions and psychiatric themes. But that was one of the things that were interesting, you know, that I was interested in about this 40s period. But it still felt sort of quite like the de Havilland twins. It was quite split. You know, you'd either got these good or bad psychiatrists in the, in across those cycles of uh, production, at least. Um, and also there was a lot of conflation of different psychiatric roles and uh, expertise. I think like in The Dark Mirror, he's sometimes referred to as a psychiatrist, sometimes referred to as a psychologist. You know, there wasn't a lot of ambiguity. They were quite black and white, these films, but also often didn't have the same attention to detail in terms of distinguishing between these different uh, modes of expertise. The Demons of the Mind project is focused on a period defined by the social historian Arthur Marwick as the long 1960s. So we're looking really at about 57 through to 73 mm-hmm. is our um, periodization, And our sense was, particularly in cinematic terms, there was a heavy investment in that period in films that both dealt with psychiatric themes, were based on in many cases, real psychiatric case histories or drew on psychiatric uh, theory and uh, texts. And they used this type of expertise that we were looking at in, in shaping them. A key shift that takes place through this period is a move away from associating social behaviour with deterministic biological pathologies or abnormalities. In the past, films readily associated such pathologies with character traits, such as deviance, criminality, or some other unspecified sense of social dysfunction. Characters would then fit within the narrative or thematic shape of a film. This transitional phase in psychiatric thinking saw the rise in more psychotherapeutic methods. Here's Project co-investigator Ray McCauley once again. There were kind of like broader changes as well, like deinstitutionalization, the Mental Health Act in the late 1950s. So the idea of caring the community and of closing down asylums and what that meant in terms of where clinical um, practice takes place um, and whether it's on an individual one-to-one basis or whether it's group therapy. So there were, there, there were legislature change during this period as well. And as you've mentioned, that in terms of like the film industry itself, rather than them being kind of smaller um, smaller projects, they became prestige films. That Psy-themed films during this kind of transitional period, they started pulling in big names mm-hmm. in terms of directors and in terms of actors as well that wanted to be associated with what hitherto were, if not problematic or taboo, they just didn't draw audiences in the size that they did until this period that we're looking at. So how did the specifics of these collaborations manifest themselves? What was the aim from either side? And what were the outcomes in terms of narratives, characterizations, and audiovisual aesthetics? 
Filmmakers wanted to produce films that were more realistic in terms of the depiction of conditions, treatments and experiences, thus having the intention to imbue a sense of authority. The Psy Sciences arguably wanted a greater understanding of their work. The nature of the collaborations took many forms, the most obvious being the basing of a film on an actual case history. The Three Faces of Eve was an example of just such an adaptation right at the beginning of the long 1960s. Before the drama even commences, the film deploys very clear narrative mechanisms to establish verisimilitude and authenticity. After the credit sequence and melodramatic theme music, there is a fade-up to a medium-wide shot. With the backdrop of a cinema auditorium, we face the figure of British journalist Alistair Cook. Suited with arms folded, Cook cuts an austere and imposing figure. His received pronunciation is the contextualising voiceover throughout. The film begins with a direct address to the audience. This is a true story. How often have you seen that statement at the beginning of a picture? Well, this is a true story about a sweet, rather baffled young housewife who in 1951, in her hometown in Georgia, suddenly frightened her husband by behaving very unlike herself. Well, there's nothing unique in that. We all have moods. Well, Here is a clear call to the audience regarding the provenance of the story they are about to see. The rather archaic use of terminology, of course, possesses a judgmental tone that is problematic by today's standards. She was, in fact, a case of what is called multiple personality, something that all psychiatrists have read about and very few have ever seen. Certainly not Dr. Thigpen and Dr. Cleckley. Now, their account of the case was delivered to the American Psychiatric Association in 1953, and it's already a classic of psychiatric literature. So this movie needed no help from the imagination of a fiction writer. The truth itself was fabulous enough, and all the episodes you're going to see happen to this girl, whom they call Eve White. And much of the dialogue is taken from the clinical record of the doctor that we call Dr. Luther. This opening sequence as the anchoring point of the film and the journalist's voiceover throughout is undoubtedly an assertion of authenticity. The clear connection between the film and the work of Cleckley and Thinkpen further imbues the film with a sense of provenance, almost demanding a certain kind of spectatorship. So Thigpen, Corbett Thigpen and Hervey Cleckley were these two psychiatrists who did therapy with this particular individual who was diagnosed as having multiple personality disorder. So they worked, or Thigpen worked on the script. They also produced a book that was quickly published just prior to the film being released as well, which was like a novelization of her case history, as it were. And they were also in competition with another film that was being made by a rival film studio, it's called Lizzie, which was based on a novel by Shirley Jackson called The Bird's Nest, which draws on other kind of classic cases of multiple personality disorder. And at that time, it was quite a rare condition. You could probably count or be familiar if you work within the side professions, the number of people who'd been diagnosed with this. Hey, even if I don't come out, what do you figure to do about it? I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure. Nobody knows too much about this because there haven't been too many such cases. 
But for a start-up, I think I'd like to tell Eve White about you. What do you want to do that for? You object? Well, won't that worry you even more? I thought you didn't care what happened to her. Well, I don't really. But I mean, you know, if she worries anymore, ain't she liable to go crazy anyway? I'm afraid that is a possibility, but that's a chance I think we're going to have to take. One of the interesting aspects about The Three Faces of Eve is the way in which the psychiatrist is portrayed as not having all of the answers. He uses the relationship between Eve Black and Eve White as a test subject for experimentation of his methods. This is in a much more therapeutic vein, and his treatment is contrasted directly with the possibility that Eve may end up in a lunatic asylum. The way in which multiple personality disorder has been displayed on screen and accounted for has changed over time um, since the 1950s and not only how it's portrayed on screen but how it's defined by by psychiatrists and, and, and psychologists as well that has actually got a new term now so that's called dissociative identity disorder rather than multiple personality because the idea was instead of having multiple personalities in one body it's a single identity which is dissociated into different aspects of it and filmmakers are working with those kind of differing changing definitions and it alters the way in which they make kind of cinematic choices of how that is portrayed on screen whether or not there are psychiatrists or psychologists directly involved that that becomes part of the common wider discourse it doesn't just reside within either clinical communities entertainment media industry or the wider public do you remember dr day how do you do doctor how do you do Oh, well, then you must be Dr. Uh, Luther. Luther, yes, of course. I should have known. You mean you have heard of me? Yes, through both Eve White and Eve Black. Hmm. Not unfavorably, I trust. <laughs> On the contrary, they think very highly of you, both of them. Are we to understand, uh, this is a little awkward, but uh, are we to understand that you're no longer Mrs. White? No, I'm not. Nor Eve Black? No. Then may I ask, what is your name? I don't know. The Cosmos Sizemore case was not what we would consider today a bastion of ethical medical health practice. Indeed, Ray here outlines how the doctor-patient relationship in the case is imbued with hierarchies of gendered power dynamics. And Thigpen's role in, in this is, it could be considered of overstepping the boundaries of a patient-doctor relationship. It was very intimate with, with this particular patient. He shot some film of her, a medical kind of film for didactic, for teaching purposes, where he flew her out from Georgia to Atlanta and bought her gowns to wear. And if this film is actually available, it's kind of a, a one-hour film of seeing Chris Cosner Sizemore going into her alters or, or her other... Um, personalities right but it's 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 quite creepy in a sense in that he's flattering her figure and he's suggesting correspondence that she, he's found a swimsuit that she would look great in so this this went beyond the bounds of propriety in terms of a doctor-patient relationship through the project it's interesting to note the replication of the gendered discourse focused on women patients in many of these psychological films at the same time 
The Three Faces of Eve represents the start of this cycle of films that were, in many ways, reflective of a shifting culture in the sci sciences. It encapsulates the expanding set of terminologies that were a result of new avenues of research and diagnosis. This exemplified a move away from catch-all taxonomies such as madness or lunacy in the search of a more nuanced understanding of psychological experiences. You look at something like the, the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Manual for Psy Professionals, it becomes much bigger and much more nuanced whether or not we would agree with the you know the those designations within it um but it becomes more complex as that period goes on as well so you know so a, a term like schizophrenia is this catch-all designation which is simultaneously appears to be used in in psychiatric culture and in film culture that becomes quite contested in the films that we're looking at indeed whether it is a a real or or if it is a useful diagnosis Caretakers, directed by Hal Bartlett and starring Joan Crawford and Robert Stack, was released in 1963. It's a fascinating example of the tension between a young psychiatrist with specific ideas around group therapy and a head nurse who is set in her dominating, punitive methods. Watching it, you could definitely see it as an antecedent to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You're so angry, Marion. She has a right to be here like everyone else. I think you're lousy hospitals are phony, and you're the biggest phony of them all. Get it to get it to you. Tell me, doctor. How old were you when you started hating your brother? How did you feel when your mother stopped nursing you? What did you find out behind the school gymnasium, huh? The truth, Marion. That's all we're looking for. Oh, what did you know about truth? You and your questions. It's about a woman who has a psychotic episode in a cinema and is then taken to a, a mental institution experiences these two different forms of treatment so initially is taken under the wing by a um, kindly psychotherapist who uh, has this borderline wing for uh, for patients who he feels can be rehabilitated and put back into in the community and so forth the other part of the hospital which favors these other sort of biomedical treatments ect uh, electroconvulsive therapy and uh, and uh, lobotomy and other other approaches so so it's sort of about her story and about her being pulled between these two contrasting methods of, of treatment. Stack, as Dr Donovan McLeod, introduces her to a group of female patients, all suffering from certain conditions. Dirty, filthy, everything's filthy. Huh! Who the hell are you? Listen, sister, you're no better than anybody. You're the same, just the same. Let me tell you something. I'm a hell of a lot more honest than all of you put together. You know why? Because nobody made me choose my life. I chose it. I found out very early what all you men want and just how much you pay for it. And I made him pay. You bet I made him pay. Scenes of this group discussing their feelings and experiences do reiterate certain stereotypes regarding historically pathologized traits of femininity. The good doctor's methods, however, reflect a non-punitive, non-violent approach, asking patients to talk through their feelings without judgment. Hal Barlett, who made the film, you know, he was somebody who was himself very much motivated by the 
by advocating for these psychotherapeutic methods and through that, uh, you know, the, the, the political impetus of that going on in the country at the time. McLeod's methods are at odds with the head nurse, Lucretia Terry, played by Crawford, who believes firmly in punitive measures to control these untrustworthy patients. If we didn't have trouble enough, I don't know what it's all going to lead to. I have a very good idea what it's going to lead to, and I'm counting on your help. I've been here ten years next month. I've never failed to do my job yet, have I? Borderline, we call it. Bracken, you know the kind of discipline I believe in. You know what I stand for. I want a complete report every day. I want every infraction of the rules noted down, no matter how little, no matter who does it. I'll take care of it. There are scenes of electroshock therapy and even a self-defense class for the new nurses. Look, the board promised me a fair chance. I must have nurses trained in this new work. You find the nurses at Canterbury inadequately trained? I didn't say that. I'm responsible for the safety of my nurses. I've spent 20 years building up the nursing staff here. I've fought for them, protected them, and defended them. Interestingly, it is revealed that the doctor's approach is informed by his own childhood trauma. Sensitivities, feelings for people, all locked up behind bars, all destroyed by the age of 45. Committed suicide less than a year later. I never spoke of my fellow's illness or how he died. I buried my feelings, guilt, the shame. I became obsessed with the idea that man had burned out because nobody knew enough or cared enough. Could you know? The point of bringing in psychiatric experts wasn't fact checking. Um, which, you know, was something which was important. But sometimes, actually, the the idea of juxtaposing or contrasting different approaches and using as that as a way to make political arguments for advocating for certain approaches was actually at the heart of some of these, you know, a bunch of these narratives, both mm. Hollywood and uh, British films. The Caretakers was one of the first films defined as part of a deinstitutionalization cycle. The collaboration from Psy Professions manifested itself in certain thematic concerns, such as a shift away from the default institutionalization of people towards more of a care in the community approach, and promoted the use of psychotherapeutic methods rather than biomedical treatments. I think that the films were judged partly in terms of like taste culture, and they were also judged in terms of whether they were transgressive morally as well. And they, prior to Trevelyan arriving, did their censorship in-house. So they didn't consult science um, advisors or, or practicing physicians or psi professionals. They felt that they had sufficient kind of collective decision-making or knowledge of films and audiences to be able to adjudicate as it were or make suggestions for what needs to be removed. The role of censorship, particularly at this point regarding American films looking to be distributed in the UK, had to pass through the BBFC, the British Board of Film Censors as it was then known. But times were changing in this area too. In a landmark case in 1960, D.H. Lawrence's novel Lady Chatterley's Lover was successfully defended against the Obscene Publications Act. This was symbolic of a cultural shift in attitudes towards censorship. 
John Trevelyan, who became the BBFC secretary in 1958, was intent on incorporating this new liberal spirit. He stated, quote, The British Board of Film Censors cannot assume responsibility for the guardianship of public morality. It cannot refuse for exhibition to adults films that show behavior that contravenes the accepted moral code. And it does not demand that the wicked should also be punished. The BBFC had a long tradition of, uh, of prohibiting films that dealt with mental health that they were felt to be not in the interest of the public. John Trevelyan coming in in the late late 50s, he was seen as this liberalising influence. He paved the way to some extent for a more lenient approach to uh, to some of the films that we're looking at. And there was a pressure to at least look at them and to try and find a way to make these films work because they were considered to be like prestige productions uh, to some extent in America and had this resonance. So, so initially... Trevelyan looked to an established organisation, the National Association for Mental Health, who were the main psychiatric body, an independent body, but a body that was funded by government, and asked them to come in as consultants and to try and find a way to make this film work. So uh, the first film that they looked at in this cycle was The Caretakers, which was ultimately released as Borderlines in in Britain, which was not to do with censorship, was because there was another film called Caretakers that was coming out at the time. <laughs> because of this film's role in America in, in, in passing the uh, Mental Health and Community Care Act. The long 1960s was a period of transition in paralleling the social transformations that were happening in different ways and at different rates in Britain and the United States. The late 60s and early 70s was, of course, the era of civil rights, and along with feminism and the fight for racial justice, less visible battles for the rights of human treatment of patients was a part of this agenda. There was an attempt to try and work out what to do with these films. So the BBFC typically had a policy of prohibition on any films that depicted mental institutions. Um, but because of the the nature of that film and the fact that it was screened in Congress and was was revered and so forth there was a feeling that we do need to try and find a compromise and allow this film to be released in britain so they they brought in this organization the national association of mental health to um to be consultants on that and this was seen by the bbfc and the filmmakers as being a failed consultation because for one there was an attempt to sort of hijack this film and to make it start advocating for british psychiatric techniques even though it's a film about american psychiatry to have an introduction by uh, a british psychiatrist standalone at the beginning of the film that said this film depicts an american forms of psychiatry and that we do things very differently in britain and all this sort of stuff we're using like uh, a well-known bbc psychiatrist like uh, david stafford clark or uh, william Sargent, who's uh, sort of controversial biomedically oriented psychiatrist at the time who was known through his appearances in BBC programmes and so forth. The insight here that censorship provided something of a pretext for professional tensions across opposing wings of the psi sciences attests to how the evolution of mental health perspectives and medical science more broadly is as much ideological as it is objectively deterministic. Cinematic representation was understood as a key territory where public perception could be shaped. Indeed, this notion of the effect on audiences, perhaps influenced by sociological arguments that media can directly influence spectators, was an underlying concern for the BBFC. 
With Trevelyan's arrival, he saw things very differently. He saw that there was a limit to the expertise which could be deployed within the board to be able to make decisions about how harmful these films were. Because one of the things they were concerned with is those people in the audience, especially younger audiences, but not only, um, those that are susceptible may see something on the screen which would trigger them to either uh, imitate that or in some sense it be normalized not necessarily playing a, a full-blown role model or not necessarily resulting in a copycat action deviant action but it having like a corrupting influence but it's also about whether these films might discourage people from seeking psychiatric treatment. So oh, okay. certainly some of the American ones, the more of the concern was this might discourage people from seeking treatments that we yeah. currently use. But certainly there was also that second issue of are these films likely to, quote, you know, send people over the edge and so forth. Directed by William Wyler, a 1963 British film, The Collector, tapped into darkly challenging aspects of the psyche, and at the same time, fears about the liberalisation of society. Based on a novel by John Foles, The Collector starred Terence Stamp as the socially awkward loner, Freddie Clegg. In the opening sequences, we follow him as he stalks a London art student named Miranda, played by Samantha Eggers. With its use of point-of-view shots, the film's tone is reminiscent of Michael Powell's Peeping Tom from 1960. Freddy proceeds to abduct Miranda using chloroform, bundling her into his van and driving her to his large 17th century mansion. Imprisoning her in the cellar, the film proceeds through the psychological interaction between the two characters. You've gone to a lot of trouble. All those clothes in there, all those art books. I'm your prisoner, but you want me to be a happy prisoner. Why? Since you know my father isn't a rich man, it isn't for ransom, as you say. The only other thing is sex. It's not that at all. I shall have all the proper respect. Then why am I here? I want you to be my guest. Your guest? Freddy tries to convince Miranda that she will fall in love with him. She, in turn, attempts various rhetorical strategies to get him to let her go, while also attempting various means of escape. As Tim outlines, this film presented particular problems for the BBFC. The Collector, you know, a, a prestige film by William Wyler. And that's a film where, you know, the BBFC just examiner in 1963 just holds his hands up and says, I don't know how to judge this film. I don't know whether this is a good or bad depiction of this particular this psychotic or psychopathic condition. I don't know whether this film is likely to do damage or affect people in a negative way. We need to bring someone in to look at this. So this is where uh, John Trevelyan starts looking at finding an expert, finding a psychiatric expert that he can bring in to confidentially consult on these films and act as advisor, as an examiner. So his name is Stephen Black, this guy that they bring in who has had some himself, some media training and some media expertise himself. He made a documentary with his brother in the late 40s about the film The Snake Pit and comparing that to um, to experiences in, in British psychiatric hospitals, um, but has also done some work with the BBC on TV programmes. So it is a guy who is a bit savvy about 
the media and understands it as a context, but is a practicing psychiatrist in private practice and also works at Guy's Hospital. So he's brought in as this advisor and is ultimately the, the person who's really making the decisions on whether these films should be released and whether they require censorship. And ultimately, as his role progresses and is enhanced, his collaborations become much more creative that rather than the BBFC using him externally, they put him in contact with filmmakers and get him to basically work with them and say, if you want to make this film, work with this guy and try and make it so it's um, it's as accurate and as least problematic as possible. Mm. And ultimately, we get these some of the ways that he's working with filmmakers is is far beyond what we would see as, you know, fact checking and consultation in that respect. But it's more the BBFC are sort of brokering this creative collaboration where actually this guy is having direct influence on on decisions on script, on editing, on even you know where films are distributed and who they're seen by. The prominent position of a working psychiatrist at the heart of the BBFC, not only advertising on the verisimilitude of the psychological representations on screen, but having a direct influence on the creative process itself, would come to bear most significantly on one of the most lauded and controversial psychological thrillers of all time. Repulsion, a frightening film that takes the everyday world and distorts it, taking you inside the mind of a girl driven to insanity. No other film has ever shown with such intense reality the terrifying journey into madness. I want to be... I think a film which exemplifies what you've been describing, his consultation on the film, is Repulsion. He works very closely with Polanski and he has very specific things to say about the film when it's in the script stage, when it's actually being shot. So he was on set, he was also consulted, Polanski got on very well with him. Um, so he, he played a very, very prominent role in terms of shaping how this film looked on screen, the mechanics of actually making it, and also um, how it was interpreted back at the Board of Film Censorship as well. In the attractive body of this beautiful girl throbs the mind of a killer. Carol Ledoux, possessed by the nightmare world of her sensual fantasies. Undoubtedly, Repulsion looked to push the boundaries of what would be acceptable to the BBFC as the cinematic arbiters of taste and moral acceptance in changing times. The salacious tone of this trailer doesn't hide that fact. But it's also arguable here that the collaboration between Polanski and this professional representative of the BBFC, Stephen Black, might not only have been about the authentic representation of pathology and trauma or the advancement of the psychiatric disciplines, he goes to dinner at Claridge's with Trevelyan and Polanski. Um, so, you know, I should say that these kind of decisions and networks that are made, they're not only professional, they're also social as well. So, like, there's a quite a kind of elite network amongst which decisions are made as to who qualifies to be able to make these decisions. So it's not necessarily in terms of a scientist's output, Mm. or a researcher's output. It's also worthy work, who they're connected with. But Black 
appears to have um, really gelled with what it is that the BBFC were doing at the time. Now, the nightmare terror from the depths of her imagination erupts into the solid world of every day. And fact and fantasy are fused in a frantic fury of repulsion. And this is a film that, you know, at the beginning of the process, when the producer contacts the BBFC about making that film, they say, we can't release this film. This isn't going to get... The only way that this film can be screened is to, for it to be screened to, to like, cinema clubs, you know, to exclusive audiences. And ultimately, by the end of this process and through Black's involvement, ultimately, they completely switch. You know, it, it has its release with an X certificate, as you would imagine, but it, there is no additional cuts, which, like, blew Polanski's mind. He couldn't believe that that was the case, that they didn't want to edit it further. But also, it went from being a problem to this guy... Uh, Stephen Black saying this film should be seen as widely as possible. This is a film about mental health awareness. This is a film that we should try and like promote and get out there. So mm. this is complete through that process, you know, and ultimately becomes then distributed really widely. Within the context of British culture, not just film, but literature, theatre and television. The 1960s saw the emergence of what has been defined as an artistic new wave, forged from a concern with realistic depictions of working-class characters and lives. At the forefront was the director Ken Loach and the writer David Mercer. Their earliest work comes via the iconic television programme The Wednesday Play. Airing on March 1, 1967, In Two Minds was a screenplay that depicted the experiences of Katie Winter, played by Anna Cropper, a young woman with schizophrenia, whose traumatic family situation and subsequent treatment in a mental hospital is depicted using the then-experimental form of drama documentary. Well, she doesn't want me to be myself, do you? She objects... She objects to everything I do. She, she, she dislikes my friends. She thinks I drinks. She, she criticizes me all the time. She, there's nothing else I can do, is there? She, I mean, I have to live here, don't I? I mean, I wouldn't call it that. No, I don't think I'm enjoying myself all that much. I mean, for some time, I have been studying the families of schizophrenic patients. She's sort of got a what you will see are extracts from interviews with the family of one of these patients, Kate Winter. When Kate re-entered hospital, my research into her case had of necessity to cease. The program is shot using an observational style, as if the camera is capturing real recordings of ongoing interviews. At the beginning, the audience is addressed in voiceover by Brian Phelan, the actor playing an unnamed interviewing psychiatrist. He affects the mode of a neutral interviewer, exploring the relationship between Winter and her parents, her sister and boyfriend at some length, but refrains from making judgments. Well, this is what I'm trying to say. You see, you've only got to look at her. Look at her? Uh, no, I don't mean look, I mean uh, listen. Listen to what she says and what she does. She's killing her mother. Yes, well, you see, one of Kate's delusions is, well, you understand, is that her mother is killing her. Oh, yes, I know, but I mean, that's, that's just plain nonsense. I mean, surely you know that being a doctor. I was fortunate enough to, before um, he sadly died, to interview Tony Garnett, who was the producer, uh, you know, long-time collaborator with Ken Loach, and the 
producer of this film and really the inspiration for this particular story because it was based or inspired at least by his ex-wife's experience that she the actress um topsy jane who was in loneliness of the long distance runner that she had mental health issues she had a psychotic episode and was because um parents didn't know what to do and her mother didn't know what to do was institutionalized and was given um was treated heavily with ect uh, electroconvulsive therapy and with uh, with drugs like actil and uh, and other antipsychotics and you know as as tony garnett talks about it she you know she never came back from that that was ultimately she just went into decline as a result of this the program is harrowing to watch with unflinching representations of electroconvulsive therapy ect but in some ways more subtly horrifying is the way the dynamic between the parents is depicted. The directorial intention here is that the audience will reach the conclusion that it is the traumatic upbringing and the stifling dogmatic rules that leaves Katie without a sense of her own autonomy. Can we come back to the Sunday morning when Katie stayed out all night? Aye. Uh, she came slinking in. Aye, because she was frightened of you. Right into what you were going to say to her. Huh? Proper worked up he was when it's too late. Oh, he can shout his mouth then. I never said a word to her. Oh, it's a case of what she was expecting, wasn't it? I've never been one to crack down no. on her. She'd gone too far that time. Look, as long as the girl is under my oh, roof... Oh, you've got she... your bigoted side. Ah, no, darling, look. He's got his bigoted side. Some days she can't do anything right. Her hair's wrong, her clothes are wrong, everything's wrong. Why don't you be open and tell the doctor the truth? It's what he's here for. Admit you wanted a son. But I've loved Katie from the minute that she was born. Aye, and a right tomboy she'd have been if you'd had you away. In Two Minds was influenced by the ideas of the Scottish psychiatrist and writer R.D. Lang, particularly his works Sanity, Madness and the Family and The Divide Itself. Lang was a fervent proponent of the idea that mental illness lacks an organic basis in the brain. Instead, arguing that traumas are a result of social relations, particularly the dynamics of the family. Loach wanted to work with him and make that work with him, you know, as, as collaborators and so forth. But yeah, so at least initially it came from, from him and then he got David Mercer, the uh, scriptwriter on board, who'd to some extent dealt with similar material before in terms of uh, Morgan, A Suitable Case for Treatment, a film which isn't explicitly an anti-psychiatry film, but does you know, uh, look at some of those, some of the similar issues around the nature of madness and, you know, whether madness is uh, a societal issue and so forth. So, so yeah, so he was inspired to make that film through this experience and then ultimately got a bunch of these really prominent uh, radical psychiatrists on board to help him make it as well. So it was, so R.D. Lang was a, a script consultant on the film. David Cooper, who's another, um, key figure in the anti-psychiatry uh, movement was sort of, was on set facilitated access to a lot of the locations that you see in the film which are real hospitals Shenley hospital a real ect treatment ward uh, they did attempt they did want to film a genuine ect treatment and they were told that they couldn't do that so i had to use like stage stage one there um and uh, Aaron Esterson, who was a, a you know a collaborator of um of Lang's and, and it was based on some of the case histories in some of uh, Lang and Esterson's work as well. So partly based on the divided self, partly based on um, their other their other books, Sanity, Madness and the Family, a case study from that. So I couldn't believe it that I was going around with a real writer. Me? Why not? It's just not my world, is it? Well, what is your world? 
don't know what I am or, or what I want. But if you imagined it? My sister Mary, she got this job as a secretary and she got her own flat. She ran away from here when she was 17. She got away. Why didn't you go away? Couldn't, could I? Why not? I know, I just couldn't. Can you remember how it happened when you began to get ill? Well, they told you, haven't they? I want you to. Well, I went for over the bread knife, didn't I? That's what your parents say, certainly. They say it, it must be true, mustn't it? There is an interesting question here regarding the alignment between the technique of psychotherapeutic interviewing deployed as a methodology by psychiatrists like R.D. Lang and the use of the drama documentary format which knowingly allies reality and representation with the intention to assert authenticity. But the documentary method, although the you know we understand that drama documentary technique as something very Lochian and and you know and very much of the the Wednesday play of which of which those films were. It also is drawn from Sanity Matters and the Family. You know the opening lines on that documentary. I've been working with patients with schizophrenia for five years or whatever. Is the opening lines of of that book, and it does largely try and reproduce some of the ethnographic approach of that material as well. Mm. So there is a real attempt to align these two different modes of address and these two ways of communicating with audiences into this thing. And so I think it's an, an interesting film. And it probably, although it is quite clearly social realist in the way that Loach's later films uh, develop, the second half of it is much more, is interesting. It's much more experimental. It's, it's maybe something we wouldn't expect from, yeah, from yeah. Loach in terms of its use of subjective camera and try and allow us to experience the main characters um, and mm -hmm. witness experience. And I think um, that's a product of that creative collaboration. This isn't just a loach, you know, clearly there's sort of elements of loach in there, but there's also this, mm. you know, that's really not his style, is it? Um, mm. So I think it's sort of interesting how it, it genuinely feels like a piece of filmmaking that has been put together mm. through these different forms of expertise and different forms of creativity. So there are ethical questions to consider in terms of the aesthetic strategy of drama documentary. How might a viewer consider that the characterization of the psychologist enacts a very realist subject position, as though he is an actual professional using the filmmaking process for a mode of observational therapy. Furthermore, it seems that the directorial intention is to evoke a sociological legitimacy, something of a mimesis of what the clinical investigative process would look like, through both the form as well as the story, which again draws upon actual case histories of trauma. You could see the play itself as being analogous to Sanity Madness and the Family in that it's kind of like a visual ethnography and the role of the observer in ethnography is this non-participant observer. So it's from this kind of analytical God's eye view kind of thing. It's removed and it's more reflexive. So in one sense, it's, it's, a, it's a fictive role being completely outside of what you're observing is not possible. Mm. Um, you influence what you observe and you can't step outside of it. But nevertheless, that's almost an integral component of what it is to be an analyst or what it is mm. to be an ethnographer it's to it's to adopt that position so I'm, I'm not entirely sure that it misconstrued anything that was in in the book one of the tenets of kind of lang's approach is that schizophrenic speech the ways of understanding and communicating a position in the world which is enunciated which is spoken by the schizophrenic 
person who's labeled a schizophrenic is legible it's meaningful it might not have the logic that's that's apparent in people who haven't um, had that diagnosis but you need to be able to see it contextually within a f within a family context within institutional within a d an environmental context and it begins to make it can be seen to be not just gibberish but have a logic and a meaning of its own. Mm. So I think that the that the play itself is faithful to that in some respects. Okay. Morning. I, I can, good morning, listen, good morning. I can. Well, there you are, you see. In many ways, a fairly typical case history. Happy and sociable till early teens. Then in and out of various jobs for a while. Reputation for inefficiency. Bad temper, rudeness. Often alienated from the people she was working with through the notion that they were somehow plotting against her or disliked her or trying to make a fool of her. The power of the ending of the film, which is basically like the, the fury that you feel that you see Kate ultimately, you know, having been disintegrated through this treatment. You see her being presented in front of an audience by a psychiatrist who is precisely you know, one of the, the a psychiatrists who favours biomedical uh, treatment, and him making those interpretations based purely on a few case notes and so forth. And we're furious because we've seen, we know where her, we know where her yeah, symptoms yeah, yeah, come yeah, from. Yeah. She was in seclusion for a time and gained a reputation for smashing instead of catatonic excitement. There were delusions of persecution. For example, that her mother was killing her had killed her aborted child, that she was under the control of some all-powerful cosmic machine. From the family history is negative and there's no protectable relationship between her various The Demons of the Mind project explores a fascinating period of interaction between the film industry and the psi professions in the United States and the United Kingdom. The project reflects a transformative period, the long 1960s, in which mental health professionals intervened in cinema culture in unprecedented ways, changing how films were produced, censored, exhibited and received. These collaborations reflected positive shifts in ideologies of experience and treatment and the desire to show the realities of patient trauma and the efforts of psychiatrists and psychologists to effect new radical ways of thinking. The influences and interactions of psychiatric and cinematic expertise and ideas impacted film content and form, reoriented the nature of psychiatric consultation on film, accelerated fundamental shifts in film censorship and provoked creative convergences of the material cultures of media and medicine. Yet the research also reveals ethical questions in the mechanics of such collaborations. It opens up questions about the authenticity of representations regarding patient symptoms, methods of treatment and the role of institutional bodies and social networks in the relationships between filmmakers and site professionals. This episode was written, narrated and edited by Dr. Dario Linares. With special thanks to Dr. Tim Snelson and Dr. William McCauley of the Demons of the Mind Project and Dr. Neil Fox for feedback and support. This has been a Cinematologist production. If, on listening to this, 
you are interested in a research collaboration with the podcast, please don't hesitate to email us. The address is cinematologists at gmail.com. Please check out the show notes for more details on the project, a full filmography and reading list. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, yeah, it was a real labour of love for me to do it. Thanks very much to Tim and Ray for thinking of us for the project and then uh, working out a relationship where we could uh, be a, a consultant on the on the project. I hope they like the outcome. They've told me they have, so uh, I'll, I'll have to take them of their word and not second-guess myself. Um, and as I said there, um, I'm very much, or we are very much in, interested in such collaborations in the future. So if anyone out there who's listening has got any research work that they would like to be given the cinematologist's documentary treatment, then please get in contact to discuss potential collaborations. We'd love to, to hear from you. But for now, Neil, yeah, what did you make of that? Loved it. So yeah, first off, you know, well well done. Um, a really, yeah, really great piece of work. Uh, as I sort of messaged you, you know, honoured to have it out on the on the podcast. But just, yeah, really, really thoughtful and interesting yeah, kind of discussion and conversation and and piece of work. So, yeah, really, really top notch. It made me think about things that sort of coming out of it in terms of my sort of response, which I'll sort of go to the to the, the material as you sort of presented it. So I'll come back to that. But what it also then made me think: Well, I wonder what your approach to the overall research project was. You know, how much of what you wanted to make the documentary about is you know is it is it all of is it like the core focus is it a strand you know what was your process of thinking okay i'm going to take these elements of the research uh, and weave it and, and you know what was what was your thinking behind how you wanted to approach the making of it first yeah um it it's a tricky one because it's kind of like whenever you come to an area that is kind of not directly your field of study but then you do know something about then you have to and then also thinking about an, a cinematologist's audience, how to kind of package it for them, which sounds like a horrible word, but do you know what I mean? It's kind of like you've got to be able to traverse those those different elements in your mind. And when I had the conversation about the first draft with the guys, you know, I think that they were a little bit wary about the the, the, the sort of contextualization at the big beginning which is not their project, you know, and there's none of that in their project. So that bit that talks about what is the relationship between cinema and psychoanalysis, how do we how do we think about that? But I, I just thought that that was necessary for then to pivot away from that and sort of sort of say, well, well, this is what you understand by, this is what most people understand by a relationship between cinema and psychoanal psychoanalysis or psychoanalysis in films, you know what I mean? The representation of it. Because I think that the... Although that they don't research that, it their project can't help but critique that, even sort of un unconsciously, if you want to use a psychoanalytic term. So that that's always there in the background, I think, when you're thinking about that that relationship. So then, when you come to a a much more material sense of that relationship, i.e., filmmakers and psychoanalysts actually collaborating there is a kind of, of a, a sense of maybe where some of those tropes come from in a good way and sometimes in a bad way as well. And the other thing is it's, it's again, we, we, we talk about this a, an awful lot that we haven't got a, a, a production team around to research. 
So it's just, it's on me. It was on me really to, to kind of read around the subject. And and to be honest with you, it was a, it was a case of looking at the, the, the pieces of work that I read of theirs and the, the, the submission to the HRC about what the project was as a, as a whole. So that was quite useful <laughs> to sort of look at that submission and then think about, okay, so what kind of questions do I want to ask them in an interview? So that's the way, that's the format it took. So I read around the subject in that sense, then formulated the questions, which was a really long two-hour interview. And tried to ask the questions in ways that that would extend as much as possible their answers and then basically took out my questions entirely and, and rewrote them as a narration so I, it makes me sound like, more like I know what I'm actually talking about than I, than I do if you see what I mean so it's an interesting it's an interesting bringing together or well that's probably the opposite of that taking a part of the role of a researcher and an editor and then bringing it like having a jigsaw puzzle of those two those two positions and then bringing it back together once I'd gotten the the interview tape and listened to it through and sort of wrote off the back of that and and really their 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 contributions their answers to my questions were taken out and put in in a, a very different order to get what you'd gotten what you get at the end so it was an interesting how that it was you know that phrase it, I found it in the edit was is just very true here mm, great yeah, and obviously aligns it with the cinematic idea of a documentary, as opposed to yeah, a kind of for sure what might be loosely termed like a factual interview where you're just questioning and answer. You know, like there's a construction of a narrative yeah, and yeah, a yeah. new new context that emerges from the material. Yeah, I think that's the, the that's the case, and also there's a there's a sense in which the idea of the collaboration, what the collaboration meant to the individuals. I think is still, you know, you can never be certain about that. So it's interesting how, you know, the guys kind of they had evidence for what those relationships were, but but still you can you can speculate about any kind of collaboration between a, a, a you know a scientist and a, and an artist and what each person's how each person's ideologies and view of the world and view of a discipline like psychoanalysis impacts on what they're saying to each other and how they're working with each other. Yeah. Yeah, and that you know that that speculation aspect, I think, is really interesting in terms of the way that the documentary feels like not speculative, but uh, yeah, kind of a thinking through of of some of the questions that are being raised and how they might fit together, you know, in this kind of in in the approach that you've taken. So a couple of the things that I really started thinking about were first one was. What I thought was really effective was the way that the clips and the film choices positioned women in this sort of area of cinema in a way that sort of extends female representation of the period out of melodrama and noir, you know, both of which are contained in these films into something sort of specific. And then I thought it was interesting how sort of discussions, there were discussions around like the the impact of these films on sort of perceptions of psychiatry in particular. And I wondered if the research was looking at, at, at those two things and how they relate. And so what I mean by that is, is the project looking at sort of the impact on represent on, on women and ideas around women? Because I think what was so fascinating about the film choices that you talked about and the clips you showed was how they extend from that kind of long history of hysteria and, you know, the idea of the hysterical woman and madness into into this very clinical, very sort of specific uh, environment. 
Yeah, I think that that is suffused into the research rather than it being a research aim, if that makes sense. And it was yeah. an interesting question I sort of had to myself because it, I mean, I was I was questioning very much. I mean, it's all male voices on there, so and then a lot of the a lot of the subjects in the films are are women, you know. So I I, yeah. I didn't know whether I you know I, I toyed with it in my head whether I need to have an entire section and say and make that obvious, but I. It, it is obvious without me saying it in some ways. So uh, without it being kind of the aim of the project, I think it's just an automatic cri- criticism of psychiatry and of cinema. <laughs> you know what I mean? We make it all the time. So I think that there is a... I suppose in, in some way I can see the possibility that that would be just an automatic criticism. Well, you just don't say that, you know, outright. Well, you know, cinema is patriarchal and psychiatry, the entire... The entire basis and premise of psychiatry is based on this kind of highly gender biased methodology. And yes, and yes to 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 both of those. And I think maybe that the there is probably a much more acute areas of the way that the guys kind of focused on this in terms of, for example, that the the paralleling maybe between the role of a film director on a movie and a head head psychiatrist in a in an institution, do you know what I mean? And and what their roles are and how they define who the subjects are, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I think that's definitely there interwoven. It can't not be. But as far as I'm concerned, and maybe we'll get the, the guys on at a later date because I am planning to do a second a follow-up episode which is going to be based on some of the um, the archival materials that the British Science Museum has got. And I think that that element of it is going to be much more focused, I think, on that on that, that question that you raised there. But yeah, it is, a, it is a legitimate thing to to highlight and point out. But I think, like I say, it's it's within the fabric of it of it all, really, rather than being on the on the surface or being the, the, the main focus. For sure. Yeah, yeah. And I certainly don't think that I'm glad you didn't do that explicitly you know i don't but because i think that it, it, i found it obvious you know I, and i thought it was a takeaway from the construction of the piece you know and what it made me curious about was not the rep you know your representation of the research but the research itself and i think that that's where something like what we've been asked to do here in terms of creating that piece of work is is important as part of the research you know it's i i i don't think it i think it would be unfair to say well this is a representation of the whole research so but what it led me to think is like are you responding to what are you responding to you know i don't think you need to make explicit because i think it works better when those things sit and and, and can be picked up on by context rather than but that again like in, in, in an ahrc research project is there an awareness there is that your awareness coming to it which i thought was interesting so yeah really lovely articulation of that yeah and certainly wasn't a criticism of you not not doing that <laughs> well the thing is it's like again i mean I, I was sort of toying with the idea of having kind of like a, a a female psychoanalyst in there to make that argument in some ways but i, I don't know i mean m- maybe again i didn't want to drift away from what I'd, I'd i'd read and what we talked about as the main you know as the main focus in that in that sense yeah, and like you're like you are responding to the research project, so I think it's fair to do that uh, in that way. But just yeah, it was it was it was such a again I think because of the way we've 
talked about and approached cinema in these ways, it was, I think it was obvious, the point that was being made implicitly. Another one that was being, I thought was being made implicitly, which I thought was really interesting in terms of this idea of the psychiatrist or the kind of the clinical figure and how film has used the narrative device of the clinical figure as a this kind of symbol of uh, malevolence and how across that period and certainly kind of because it's such a key period this is you know it's such a key period in film history where film is so influential in terms of cultural thinking way more than it is now it's such a you know in terms of audiences going how it kind of removes responsibility for the mental health of individuals onto an individual it, it, it does that thing which cinema does so often which is take complex societal issues and you know kind of arguably institutional issues and sort of boils it down to this you know the quote-unquote bad apple or the the individual you know because they have to embody it in a narrative it becomes something where we associate this with something which is malpractice or you know an agenda rather than wider societal problems and that arguably shifts in terms of the 1970s vietnam response and the idea of ptsd coming more into into cinema but but certainly still then it's about an individual's response to a situation and how an individual is going to fix that or exploit it which i thought was really interesting in terms of what is how does it show up again implicitly society's failure to address these kind of bigger complex factors that that lead to this relationship existing in the first place does that make any sense i think i know what you're what you're getting at it's funny because you know the the idea of a psychotic psychiatrist i don't think has has disappeared entirely so those stereotypes are still there but i think he, whether you're talking about a like a some a character who is quote unquote a patient or a character who is quote unquote the doctor if they're in a genre movie like a horror or something like that are there that they're there in service of the narrative then I think in contemporary terms, what you get now is there is some kind of motivation. Motivation is the wrong word, but there's some kind of traumatic backstory. There's some kind of reason why they are like that, which I think prior to this era, it would almost just be that that, that person is inherently that somehow. They were born that way and they're just psychotic. I mean, I think probably the big the big sort of counter to that would be something like would be something like Christopher Nolan's Joker in The Dark Knight who expressly embodies somebody who does not does not have a reason why they're like that. They just want to watch the world burn to use that phrase. But I think what these films have done is they they've create they've created a a kind of language, a lingua franca of of a kind of psychological grounding that 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 we can now recognize and sort of say oh that person suffered trauma and that's why they're they're evil you know they were beaten as a kid or there was something to do with the family and i think that the work of rd lang is really important in that in that sense and sort of identifying that sense of the family as the as the environment of trauma and that that kind of thing rather than like in the 40s or the 50s somebody's just a monster or a weirdo that embodies somebody that you have to avoid in the plot of the movie as it were you know yeah, 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 yeah. I, there's a there's a great line that Sidney Lumet says about writing, where he says that him and Paddy Chayefsky tried to avoid the rubber ducky explanation, which was that you know in the third act someone says someone took took his rubber ducky away from him. That's why he's a psychotic killer. 
you know, so locating yeah, 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 yeah. it in a, in a, yeah. But yeah, just I, th- I think what I was trying to get at was how the films place the responsibility on the individual bo- on both sides. So it's an individual mm. problem. It's your fault. And then it's up to an individual to fix that, which I think is, yeah, yeah, no, feed I know what it, you're you know, so that then seems to feed into these ideas about mental health as, as something that you, like you say, is, is, is your responsibility and your fault, which, you know, to a degree it's an individual experience, but yeah, these films kind of repeatedly place this kind of dynamic, which I think is fascinating between the patient and the doctor. And then even in something like, you know, which I mentioned before, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you have this symbol as of an individual, which almost suggests that if that individual was replaced, the system would be better. But we know that is not true. <laughs> you know, which I just think is interesting in terms of a body of work. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And when you think about it as well, that what you're talking about there still happens today in a neoliberal sense. So absolutely. like when we're all burnt out at work, what what's the answer? The answer is not, you know fix the system, give us less work, give everybody good conditions, give people all the time, you know, the time off that they need. Don't exploit people so hard. No, it's like do meditation, have better resilience, here's occupational health. It's all fix yourself or go the other way, get, you know, productivity hacks, get up earlier in the morning, get everything done. You know, it's like, it's all super individualized now. So I don't think, I definitely don't think that the result of this, this transition during this period to a more socially um, aware or sympathetic or empathetic discipline in terms of psychology rather than the sort of biomedical approach. I don't think that that has led to a longer-term solution to the the idea of, you know, that this is not an individual problem, it's a a societal problem. I think that's still very much with us. And these films, yeah, sort of shine a light on the kind of, some of the kind of cultural thinking around why that idea still holds sway these are not small films you know and even you talk about like science of the lambs and joker so it's not even like you say it's not even just the just that period of the 40s you can't say like oh that's what they used to think like yeah these are these are ingrained and because of the relationship between cinema and psychoanalysis and which i think you were right to kind of contextualize at the start that's still there you know that that relationship is still there in really fascinating ways which i think your documentary did a really great job of again drawing attention to without explicitly stating oh thank you i appreciate that um yeah i mean again it's one of those things it's that sense of not being on the nose and sort of letting the conversation play out in the way that that it did and then and then writing the narrative around that i think was was really important i didn't want to i didn't want to force it into certain areas that it that it didn't go i mean i did make that choice at the beginning that that i think was important for a podcast that's going out to a general a more general audience even though we are we are a special we do have a specialist audience that's for sure but it's more general than the than say a journal the journal article would be that you know accompanies this which people can read I'll link to it on the show notes it's funny cuz cuz I was listening to the I've been listening to the series on a movie podcast which has got a their series is on soundtracks and how they came to how certain soundtracks came to accompany certain big films and kind of define what that film is and you know there's clearly the 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 host of that show he writes and edits it but there's definitely a lot more production support let's say than we have so it's interesting to sort of make those decisions um around what what you can possibly do so there's a bound there there is a sort of boundary there in terms of what's 
what's possible time-wise for for one one person with something with something like this. So you've got to cut your cloth accordingly, as it were. But I like I like the idea that I have done that, and it's not it it's not incorporating everything about the project or everything about psychoanalysis in cinema. It's a specific kind of take on on both those areas, you know. For sure, yeah. And I think if you hadn't drawn attention to it people wouldn't necessarily know like i think on a, you know i think it, it's really well done sounds great yeah so yeah, again did a did a fab job and yeah i'm sure that the the team's response is genuine you know because i think that there's not much out there that's going to have that kind of contextual accompaniment that will be able to take that research to a wider general audience outside of academia which is you know the point of the project isn't it it's it it is an introduction to these ideas and a way of thinking about them it's not a definitive answer because there isn't one <laughs> no 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 that's that, that's absolutely true and, and 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 if people want to delve into that research they can they, you know they can do that but i think hopefully then there'll be enough here that people will say oh that yeah that's an interesting that's an interesting sort of uh lens on that era and those and and those films that 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 were covered and how they how they sort of came to be out of this the this process of collaboration that's, that took place during during the, the the 60s and we get a conversation about the collector which i love i love that movie so that was really nice <laughs> yeah. yeah indeed anybody who hasn't seen that should just go out and watch that immediately so I think that will do us for this episode. Uh, thanks to Tim and Ray for getting in touch uh, and inviting us to be involved in the project. And yeah, thank you to our, our listeners and our Patreon uh, subscribers. Um, your support is always is always much appreciated. Uh, let us know what you think uh, of the episode and, and some of the, the ideas that it raised. Uh, thank you, Dario, for taking the lead on it and doing such a a great job. Um, really enjoyed, yeah, really enjoyed listening to it and, and sort of it really made me think about yeah, lots of stuff. Thanks very much for your support, Neil, as well, and listening, listening, and uh, yeah, giving the feedback that you did. Always a pleasure. Uh, we'll be back soon. Uh, the next episode is likely to be, if it all goes well, an in-person, face-to-face recording. I hope to be in London in a couple of weeks. Let's so we're hope going to so. tape something then. I'm very much looking forward to that. So yeah, keep your ears peeled for that. But for now, this has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.